Welcome to You Pick Tonight, a father-daughter double feature podcast. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of... Me, Lara Coyce. Each episode of You Pick Tonight, we each pick a movie for the other, and then we talk about them. This episode, we've got Oscar fever, as we watch and discuss two of the movies competing for the big awards this year. I made Lyra watch Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. And I made my dad watch Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman. As always, if you have comments, questions, or movie suggestions... Email us at youpicktonight at gmail.com. I've never actually checked that email address. I wonder what people are sending us. Uh, just nothing but fan letters. Oh, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Let's get started. Let's start by talking about Nomadland. Do I have um, groupies? Uh, groupers. They're fish. It's <laughs> just starting out with some dad jokes. Uh, so Nomadland, written and directed by Chloe Zhao. Uh, based on a nonfiction book by Jessica Bruder. It's a story about modern American nomads who live in vans and RVs. It focuses on one older woman, Fern, who's forced to leave her home after the local mine shuts down and her husband dies. This year it's nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. Before we get started, can I tell the audience about my personal um, pet theory regarding Oscar nominations and what gets nominated? Yes. So, um, I believe, I think after like a long amount of testing, um, and like looking at the Oscar nominations, if not watching all of them, that with a few exceptions, the movies that always get nominated for Oscars, um, are the ones with the most boring premises imaginable. Like you've got stuff like a young man opens up a grocery shop in, um, 1960s Albania. Yeah. Mm. I, it's like the template all of them follow. They're all like some guy does something in a time period I don't know anything about, and that thing is something completely mundane and ordinary, but it's actually like a gripping insight into the perils of human existence. Mm -hmm. A woman goes around the country and in a van and lives in her van. And mm. I'm like, okay, a million people are always doing that all the time. It's true that, as we discussed in our conversation about The Shape of Water, it's unusual for genre movies to get nominated for Best Picture. And it's true that what usually gets nominated is, you know, a, your basic drama, uh, an adult drama about grown-ups, And I guess many of them do have boring premises. You're right that it's a pretty boring premise uh, and it's mostly about feelings. I chose it uh, because I really love it nonetheless. And I also think it's probably going to win Best Picture. And I wanted you to see it because I wanted to know what you thought about it. Let's start with Fern, the main character, played by Frances McDormand. Um, what did you think of her? She's a little cranky. I mean, I think she's interesting. One of the first things that I went into this movie and like noticed, really noticed and admired, was that Fern looks like a person. Like, I think like even in Promising Young Woman, which is an amazing movie, in movies you've got people wearing like there's like certain design decisions and makeup decisions and all that, that sort of, you get the idea that people are playing characters. And obviously that's like what we want most of the time. I feel like well-crafted characters are in much higher demand than like what looks like your average schmuck shoved onto the big screen. Mm -hmm. But Fern like looks and acts like a person in a normal person situation. She's not particularly witty or charismatic, um, nor is she like a femme fatale. She's just like... She's definitely, so the the design of the movie definitely dresses her down and makes her look realistically bad considering what's going on in her life. Um, and yeah, she's a pretty ordinary person in these circumstances. I agree with you. The thing I 
do find unusual about her, at least in the context of a movie, is that um, I found her sort of hard to warm up to. Even with her friends, she's a little bit sharp. You get, you understand as the movie goes on the reasons for her spikiness a little bit, and she warms up a li- some, but also she's is she's very standoffish and is not interested in making connections a lot of times. It sort of seems like, would you like to spend time with Fern? As a person, would yeah. I like to spend time with Fern? Yeah. Probably not. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, she's standoffish and like a little bit, I don't know, she feels put out by human company. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know. Also, you I, were very angry about the dog. Oh, God. I was so pissed about the dog. Mm-hmm. She took in that stupid dog fern. That was the one time I was really angry at her. It was when she left the dog behind. I mean, that's early in the movie. And that's a, I mean, that's a real choice that she makes and the, that the movie makes to show us this adorable dog. And then Fern just fucking leaves that dog behind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have this sort of like little in-joke with myself every time is that once I, when I see a character and they're like mean or like irritating or sort of like rub shoulders badly with other people i think oh that's the one i'm probably going to like the most Mm -hmm. because i feel like those are engineered to be the most interesting you know i like it when characters are mean i think that's cool but with fern like not cool you know what i mean no Um, i get it i get it that that gives them an edge of some sort and an edge is interesting yes um and i think that fern specifically is like i sort of like got I think it in the beginning, even if I didn't know all the specific details of her life, about her husband especially, I think we had the very basic premise from the beginning, which is that Fern has made like a very difficult life decision, one that she's obviously put a lot of thought into. She's constantly being accosted by people who think they know her better than she does and think that she's making like a horrible choice. And like, even mm-hmm. if they're outwardly sympathetic to hers, to her, there's always this underlying current of like, I think you're in a bad situation. I'm offering you a landline. I'm offering you some way to help because I don't think you're capable of taking care of yourself and I think you're going to end up in a bad place. And that, like, pisses Fern off. I think that would piss off a lot of us. She's clearly, like, been thinking about this for a long time. She clearly um, is going about it in certain ways. Like, mm-hmm. it's, like, clearly she's very something she's very set on doing and, like, to being, being constantly condescended to by people who have never really experienced this or have never tried to experience this of course it feels jarring and alienating. Of course she pushes people away because of that. Well, she's chosen a life on the margins. Um, I mean, in some ways she's chosen it. In some ways she's been pushed into it. Um, but she seems comfortable with that life and with that choice. And you're right that the movie is filled with people, basically good-hearted people, who are who she's strongly connected to or weakly connected to, who are trying to help her and she isn't interested in that help. What she wants is a job that she keeps saying she likes to work, you know, the help of, we, you know, we have a church that's warm. If you want to stay there, she's not interested in that. What she wants is for someone to help her find work. And so when the offer of help comes, for example, from Dave and he says, you can work with me at the wall drug, that's help she takes because it's a job. Um, when the help is, you should just come live with me from her sister. That's help she refuses. Why don't you move in with us? I can't live here. I can't live in this room. I can't sleep in this bed. Thank you, but I can't. No, we're not as interesting as the people you meet out that's there. That's what I'm talking about. No, that's what it is. It's always what's out there that's more interesting. You left home as soon as you could. You married Beau after just knowing him a few months. 
And then you moved to the middle of nowhere with him. And then even after Bo passed away, you still stayed in Empire. I just didn't get it. I, I mean, you, you could have left. Yeah. See, that's why I can't come here. Although I think the help that she's offered by her sister is a very different sort of help than the one she's offered by well-meaning other people, and I think it's one that Fern feels a lot more guilty declining, and that this isn't just because they want to, like, save her from herself or um, keep her in it or keep her enclosed. It's because they genuinely, like, miss her and want to spend time with her. I think that's the underlying core of, like, what makes Fern actually feel bad about making some of the decisions she does is that she can't say that they're coming from a place of, like, self-absorption or misunderstanding about her circumstances. Rather, they're coming from a place of genuine affection towards her, and she turns them down anyways. So you think she feels bad about when she turns down her sister and when she turns down Dave's offer? Yes. I think she never explicitly says it, but I think by the way she treats the conversation and some of the facial expressions she's made, yes, I, I think that it's something that hurts her a bit to do. Interesting. I'm not positive that it does exactly. Um... But I don't know, you know, the, the scene right after she leaves Dave's house, you know, toward the end of the movie, the guy she's sort of been seeing on the road has ended up with his son and in a very nice house. It seems like maybe in Northern California. And she stays there for a couple of days over Thanksgiving and has a wonderful time and then just bails like early morning before anyone's awake, drives away without saying goodbye to anyone. And the first thing we see her doing afterwards is like standing on a cliff joyously embracing nature as the waves and the mist splash all around her. And it wasn't clear to me exactly how she felt about that decision. She expresses to her sister that she's sad as her sister is that the choices she's made have kept her away from a person she loves as long as they have. But I don't know if that's the same as feeling bad about the decision that she well, makes. Well, I don't necessarily think she feels bad for making that decision. Mm -hmm. I think she does ultimately think that was the right choice to make. I think she feels bad about the impact it has on some people. But sure. not necessarily about the decision itself. Sure, I mean, you can feel that the decision is right and still feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. The movie includes a bunch of real-life nomads playing basically versions of themselves. Swanky is a real-life nomad. Linda May... Is a real life nomad, even um, Bob Wells, the guy who like runs that uh, big get together of nomads in the desert. He's a real person. Why do you think Chloe Zhao did that? Why does she have real people basically playing themselves in this movie? What effect did it have on you as you were watching to see those people? I think Nomadland is a movie that's very concerned with authenticity. I think it wants to be making a coherent statement, and I think. Even more than that, I think it wants to be real. I think it wants you to look at this and go, yes, this is how people behave. I think the ultimate goal of it necessarily is for someone who lives this nomad lifestyle to pick it up and go, yeah, I've been there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think recruiting people who have actually lived these lifestyles and who so clearly imitate their movie counterparts is like the best possible artistic decision you could have made in that direction. If those people have those life experiences... I mean, it's going to be a lot easier to channel them through that work, you know? Um, we watch movies with actors all the time, and we playing people with experiences totally different from themselves, and we buy it. When you were watching those characters, 
Did you have a sense that there was something different about them than the people you usually see on the screen? Did you identify them as quote-unquote real people as opposed to actors? I didn't necessarily identify them as real people. I didn't know that they were real people until you told me. But there was like a slight different thing that I was like struggling to put my finger on. And I think in retrospect what that might have been was that they just felt more like grounded. Mm -hmm. Like the way they were talking about their experiences and what they had to do, it felt less like they were putting on a performance and like wringing all the emotion from it, which is, you know, that's like a good thing. I enjoy it when actors do that. Mm-hmm. Um, is like it more felt like they were recounting real events that had happened in their lives or things that they like understood the weight of because they'd been there. You can die out here. You're out in the wilderness, far away from anybody. You can die out here. Don't you understand that? You have to take it seriously. You have to have a way to get help. You have to be able to change your own tire. Appreciate it. Thanks, Frankie. All right. You can, you can pay me back. I'm gonna go on this trip. I'm getting ready to leave. I got a lot to do. I can't get it all done fast enough. Sure, you can help me finish things up. Hell yeah, I really. And like, I don't think necessarily like the more emotional, um, directed sort of performance versus the this is shit that's happened to me performance. I don't think either of them is necessarily superior to each other, but I definitely think this down to earth tone was what the movie was aiming for. I mean, what what another way of saying that is that they weren't acting, right? They weren't quote unquote acting. They were being, um, and I think you're right that that's 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 the vibe that Chloe Zhao was going for, and she's even it seems to me going for it from her from her actual actors like capital A actors. And the two actors in the movie, the true actors, are Francis McDormand, mm-hmm. and it's Fran playing Fern, and <laughs> Dave played by David Strathairn. Um, and it even goes a little bit beyond that to the guy playing Dave's son is David Strathern's actual son. And the woman playing Fern's sister is Francis McDormand's best friend since like forever. That's a specific kind of filmmaking to mix actors and real people. And then to try to get the actors as close to their real selves as you possibly can. Did even those actors' performances feel authentic to you in the way that the movie wanted them to? I don't know. I think it's like kind of difficult because I think this is something that has such a blurry line. I feel like every distinction you can make between acting and being is like it's a very thin thing. And if you're predisposed to thinking that someone is performing in a certain way, then you're going to see more of that behavior from them. One thing that I do think is notable, though, is that in Frances McDermott's performances, she never feels like there's it never feels like there's a camera on her Mm -hmm. and like i do feel like even with like promising young woman a lot of the actors in there feel like that there's cameras on them there's they're aware of the presence of the camera and they behave accordingly to the camera but i feel like fern or francis i suppose makes a lot of decisions that you like would not see in someone that's hyper aware of the camera there's like little ticks made and sometimes stumbling over someone's words and Whatnot, stuff like that, that, I don't know, that's the kind of stuff you get from someone who isn't aware they're being recorded. Obviously, my thesis statement here is not that Princess McDermott was unaware that she was being recorded. She just believed she was living in a van for a year and was very surprised when the movie came out. Yes, this yeah. is just one big gaslighting technique. I mean, you're right that that's, a, that's Frances McDormand's vibe often. I mean, I'm looking right now, I think the one other movie you've seen her in before is Moonrise Kingdom, in which she plays... One of the mom of one of the characters, and 
even in a Wes Anderson movie, which, as you know, everyone yeah, is I was, giving... I was about to say that, is that, like, everyone in Wes Anderson movies feels like they're speaking to the camera. That's kind of the joke of it. It's right. like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, we know you're here. Often they're literally speaking yes, directly to that's the camera. How, yeah. Before I... When I, um, I remember when I was watching The Nourished Kingdom with that, I was like, okay, is this by the same guy that made Fantastic Mr. Fox? Because he <laughs> loves to put people in the middle of rooms and then mm. stare directly at the camera. And, like, to this day, like, with everyone else, I have some difficulty, but Wes Anderson is always the director I can recognize, no matter what he's doing. It's right. a very distinct style. But even in that movie, she managed to seem more naturalistic than I think anyone else, because I think that's just her way. And it's interesting because her... She has plenty of experience working in movies by directors with very distinctive acting styles. You know, she's been in a lot of Coen Brothers movies where the acting is very specifically mannered. She's been in this Wes Anderson movie. Even in theater, the theater that she's most known for uh, is with a company called The Worcester Group, which does these... um, very stylized, almost ritualized physical performances, but yet she remains totally human in all of those things, I feel like. Like, she can't ever not be human. And and so even though she's an actor who's won two Oscars and is, I mean, generally understood to be, like, one of the best actors currently living, I still don't exactly think of her as an actor. And one of the reasons I like her so much in this movie is that I do think though there's real differences between Fern's biography and Fran's, this is about as close as we're ever going to get to this is what this is who Fran is, because I don't think they're that far apart. Yeah. Uh, so the conclusion we're coming to here is that Frances McDormand has never been aware that she's been in a movie at any point, has just been dropped randomly onto sets and been mm. told to improvise. Yep, and she's really good at it. She's incredible. Yeah. And every once in a while she comes to the Oscars and she's like, I guess, guys, you can give me this award but i've never been in a movie as far as i know (laughs) why do you think fern uh doesn't settle down in both she has those two big chances once with her sister who clearly loves her to pieces and says how sad it's been that she hasn't had her in her life one with dave a new man who seems perfectly nice who understood really does understand her right he's a nomad too though he's made the decision to settle down with his son and try to be a father you know, it's not like he doesn't understand where she's coming from or what's pleasurable about that life. Why does she give up both of those chances? I think this is a really hard question to pin down because it's not like the movie ever tells us right. at oh, any definitely. point. Yeah. Like, and I feel like there's a ton of different interpretations you can come to, but I don't think any of them will necessarily be right. They're just different things that could be why. I want to know why. what you think. I guess I have like two prevailing theories mm-hmm. in my brain. One of them is that Fran is scared. I think since the death of her husband, Fran has been afraid of staying in one place with one person and the implication that has on her. As moving around as a nomad, she's allowed to make free and like beautiful, meaningful connections to other people that don't require like a domestic lifestyle. There's no routine to them. There's no responsibility necessarily. No, they're no. like... There's, like, it's, like, her platonic ideal of what a relationship should be. You manage to have, like, this very close, intimate, important connection where you're allowed to talk about anything and everything to each other, but you don't have to be there when they're struggling. You're halfway across the continent by then. Mm -hmm. And I think for Fern, that's much of an easier thing to maintain. I think Fern understands how to talk to and relate to people very well. Like, more than I think even she knows, she's 
pretty emotionally intelligent and she's like just very good at saying like these stupidly profound things and then like not realizing she said them but then i think when it comes down to actually staying fern would rather take off because i don't think she knows how to maintain a relationship in that context anymore so that's one theory that it comes out of a kind of fear of responsibility or or a committed relationship of some kind what's your other theory my other theory is kind of connected to the first theory but it's less like negative about fern as a person it's less assuming that she's falling into bad patterns and um, running away. It's more about movement as a whole, how Fern is just, she just keeps moving. Maybe she doesn't even know why, but she gets in her car and she keeps moving and this is how she continues to live her life. Like, when she moves, she finds herself in absolutely new places and experiences that she never could hope to achieve just standing still in one place and remaining static in a routine for the rest of her life deprives her of the sort of life she could be living otherwise. I think she cares about Dave. She cares about her sister very much. And she understands the appeal of living with them. But to be static is to reach some sort of end. Mm -hmm. The end of a period that Fern is not ready to reach the end of. And I feel like to her it would be like like closing the case on her life. That's interesting coming from you. A person who does not like moving. Mm-hmm. and who Look, I'm just saying this is how Fern thinks of No, things. no, but... I th- but... I appreciate that you observe that in her, even though it runs so counter to the way you feel. I'm comfortable in our home and I like our home, but I'm always looking for reasons to for us all to go somewhere. You really love staying put. I mean, not only staying put in our house, but staying put in your bed. <laughs> I love my bed. Yeah. It's the best place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I really do believe that if someone asked you to draw a family picture, the family would be... Mom, me, Harper, you, and bed. (laughs) Bed is truly what I've been missing. I agree with your, particularly your second view about movement. And I think there might even be a little bit more to it. I think that her movement... Ah, trying to one-up me, are you? Yeah. (laughs) I think that her movement has a lot to do with grief. Um, there's that scene at the end, near the end, where she and, uh, Bob Wells, the, the RV living guy, are talking to each other. She's talking about her husband, Bo. He's talking about his son. Bo never knew his parents and we never had kids. If I didn't stay, if I left, it would be like he never existed. I couldn't pack up and move on so I stayed same town same house I can I can relate Um, I I rarely ever talk about my son but uh, today would be today would be his 33rd birthday and Five years ago, we took his life. <clears throat> and I can still barely say that in a sentence. And, and for a long time, every day was, uh, <clears throat> the question was, how can I be alive on this earth when he's not? And I didn't have an answer. And those were some hard, hard days. 
but <clears throat> I realized that I could honor him by uh, helping people and serving people. And out here, there's a lot of people our age, and inevitably there's grief and loss. And a lot of them don't get over it either. And that's okay. That's okay. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. You know, I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I always just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. And uh, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes years, I see them again. I can look down the road and I can be certain in my heart that I'll see my son again. You'll see Bo again. And you can remember your lives together then. And so the only way she has to deal with her grief is through movement. As you say, movement is the key to her, to her being able to handle her sadness um, and and despair at what has happened not only to her husband, but to her life. I loved Fern and wanted. I wanted comfort for her, like I wanted her to stay with her sister. And when she didn't stay with her sister, I wanted her to stay with Dave in that fancy ass house in Sonoma or wherever. Yeah, I was kind of like yelling internally in my head, mainly because of the baby. I wanted her to yeah, see. Yeah, it's a cute baby. That they have really good food there. Yeah. They grow their own. They have their own turkeys right there. Um, hundreds of chickens. But like, I wanted something easier for her. I wanted not for everyone not to be worried about her and for her to not be living such an economically precarious life. And dangerous. And dangerous. And I want her to not, you know, she's whatever, 65 or what, however old she is. I don't want her to have to be fucking sorting beets <laughs> in the in, in Nebraska and and cleaning disgusting bathrooms at a national park. Like, Dad, you are really going to um, alienate our vast amount of beet farmer followers. Our beet farmer listeners. Yeah. yeah. No offense, beet farmers. I'm sure it's great and you love it, but... I just didn't want that for Fern. I wanted something more comfortable for her, but yet I respected and sort of felt like I innately understood why she didn't do it. Um, and that made me like the movie more, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if I have your permission to get a little bit personal here. Sure. Um, our listeners love that shit. Yeah, they do. They do. They want every single detail mm. of our personal lives. Mm, the groupers, we call them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's like, obviously my experience with loss is not as intimate as friends is. I have not lost my husband, but like I lost a dog and a grandfather. Mm -hmm. Um, and those are very formative experiences in my life. And I think a lot of how I dealt with that was not thinking about it. Like, not like, not, not like repressing it in a sense, but it was more like this happened and it sucked and it was really awful. And now I'm going to think about other things. And I think part of that was easier because it wasn't someone that was so incredibly close to me, like, for example, a husband. Right. Um, but it was also, I don't know, it was something that I sort of did naturally and then got sort of guilty when I realized I was doing. Like, after, I, after Sir died, um, there were periods, like, of, like, 
days where I just, like, wouldn't, like, days and weeks where I just wouldn't think about it. I'd be going my life, and then I would, like, just, like, remember there for a second, and it would be like, he's dead, and also I'm not crying that he's dead. I don't know if I ever did cry. And right, then I, I went weeks without even thinking about it, and that is, does that make me awful? Yeah, does that make right. me awful? Does that mean I'm moving on? And, like, I couldn't, like, juggle that thing. It's like, I, I remember when Dora died, too, I didn't cry at that either. The rest of you were crying. I didn't cry. I don't know. I felt like I was broken. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, um, just a little personal anecdote there. But yeah, I, I understood that part. I wouldn't consider yourself even uh, jokingly broken as a result of any particular response to grief. It seems to me, based on my also limited experience with loss, um, that it's impossible to predict or even understand how you're going to respond to any particular loss. And it's so idiosyncratic the way that we all, the way that we all respond to things like this. And in a way I appreciated the way this movie talks about loss and is upfront about it. But I, what I didn't love the sort of weird pop cultural convergence of Nomadland and WandaVision at the same time in my life. And in like, a lot of people's lives because their takes on grief and how you're meant to respond to it were, were actually weirdly similar. <laughs> yeah. um, I doubt they were intending to be, but no, certainly not. They have these two, these are two cultural products that couldn't have less to do with each other. Yeah. Other than that, Chloe Zhao's next movie is going to be a Marvel movie. Um, really? Yeah. She's directing <laughs> the Eternals. I can't even imagine. Hilarious. Um, but, but yet that these two movies were essentially proposing roughly the same quote unquote cure for grief made me feel a little bit weird because there is not a, there isn't a cure for grief and B um, it's certainly not the same for everyone. And maybe my cure for grief is wallowing. You don't know. You, I mean you, unfortunately all, almost all of us in this world will one day have a chance to find out. And that makes it a universal experience, yet still one that, when you're going through it, feels like you're the only person who's ever had this happen to them before. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so overall, as you say, it's a movie with a boring premise. It's a movie uh, that's just about normal people. In fact, that's just filled with a bunch of actual normal people who aren't even actors. Were you bored? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think part of that was a problem with the pacing, mm-hmm. the way the movie was set up, in that it's not necessarily something inherently bad, but the movie was set up as just, like, a bunch of series of snapshots. Right. There wasn't, like, a necessarily coherent plot line. We were just being shown part of Fern's life. Right. And Basically I think, a year. Yeah. And I think because of that, I really had no sense of what was going to happen or also, like, where I was in the movie. Like, five minutes before the movie ended, I asked you... So, like, how close are we to the end? Mm -hmm. Because I knew that a long time had gone by, but also I was like, a million things could still happen in this movie. Sure. Well, theoretically, an infinite number of things could happen because the plot has not narrowed in a way, uh, in the way that plots often do, in a way so that only one or two things could happen. uh, Or that a certain set of things you know have to happen to resolve the situations that have been established. That's not really the way this movie works. No, and I think it's an interesting choice, but I think that it's also one that comes with a necessary decision of, I think it made for a little bit of a difficult 
watching experience, but, you know, if I held that against the movie specifically, I would, um, hate almost every single Oscar movie that came out, <laughs> because they're all like that. Uh, well, I think it's much better than most Oscar movies myself. For me, this is a straight nine, uh, nine out of ten. What about for you, out of ten? I gave it an eight out of ten. I think I'm... Oh, good. I think I rate things higher than you if I, like... If I think something is, like, just really great, or if it had, like, this sort of impact on me that Nomadland clearly had on you, I would, like, give it a 10. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what sort of things do you give a 10? 10s are reserved for, like, the great movies of my life. Like, Raising Arizona, a 10. Broadcast News, a 10. Madica Magica, I gave that a 10. Right, that's a 10 for you. Um, But I I don't... I I think it probably I would give like ten movies a ten over the, in my entire life. So to be fair, I have like a pretty good like top ten list of media, mm-hmm. and out of them, like only eight of those things are tens. Mm-hmm. The other two are nines. Right, a ten. I feel like a ten is reserved for not only do I love it, but it is like perfect. Like it couldn't. There's no way it could possibly. Be oh, better. that is not how I like. A lot of my favorite things, I think, definitely could have been improved. Mm-hmm. Like they're are things that it has, like, problems. They're, like, pacing problems. They're plot problems. They're characters that don't need to exist. It has plenty of things that need to be... That could be changed. That could be changed. The reason I give it a 10 is because it punches me right in the heart, and Mm -hmm. it makes me feel things and think about things, and it has, like, a real personal, meaningful impact on me. And that's why I give this stuff I do a 10. Like, Madoka has problems in it. Yeah. It's not a perfect piece of media, but I also care about it in a way that I fail to care about most other things, mm-hmm. like deeply and passionately. And so that's why I get to 10, not because it's amazingly crafted. All right, let's move on. To our second movie, Promising Young Woman, uh, directed by Emerald Fennell, recipient of five Oscar nominations, also including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. Lyra, what is this movie? Promising Young Woman is a rape revenge story. Mm-hmm. It features Carrie Mulligan as a woman who seeks to avenge the death of her best friend who was, surprise, surprise, a rape victim. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Bo Burnham is in it. I like that guy. Mm-hmm. It's venomous. It's soaked in so many different colors and feelings. feels mm-hmm. exactly like the type of movie I wouldn't expect to see nominated for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It's true that it doesn't have a boring log line about a guy running a grocery store in Albania. Yeah, no. No. It's much more explosive than that. So why did you choose it? I chose it because... Because it didn't seem like the kind of movie that would be Well, yeah, you, you were like, special. Lyra, we should pick Oscar movies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, how about we pick the one that doesn't sound boring? Perfect. Cassie. Mm-hmm. Did you think she was sympathetic? Did you empathize with her? Did you think her actions were justified? Uh, those are several different questions that I have different answers to. Well, she's extremely answer sympathetic. What she has been through is terrible, and the way it has damaged her and affected her is obvious and makes me extremely sympathetic to her. Do I think her actions are justified? No, not really. Like you describe this as a rape revenge movie but i don't know that cassie ever really gets revenge really yeah i think you should go but a second ago you were determined for me to stay you were pretty insistent actually i'm a nice guy are you i thought we had a connection i guess a connection a 
Okay. What do I do for a living? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. How old am I? How long have I lived in the city? What are my hobbies? What's my name? The movie, I think, works hard to make us both cheer on these little, these like stunts, these revenge stunts that Cassie pulls, whether it's the one that she's apparently been doing forever where she pretends to be falling down drunk in a bar and then confronts a man who's about to take advantage of her to show him that he's not the nice guy he thinks he is. Um, Or whether it's the sort of more high concept stunts like, you know, fooling the college dean who who ignored uh, the rape complaint um, when her best friend was raped, fooling her into thinking that her daughter was being raped at this exact second. The movie wants us, I think, both to cheer on those stunts and be thrilled at the the quick turns that Cassie makes and the and her um, ability to pull off these amazing sort of magic tricks. But it also wants us to view her as sort of irreparably damaged and unable to stop doing this extremely self-destructive behavior. And and I found that I'm much more convinced by the latter than the former. I think I saw what she was doing as essentially self-destructive and and not in any way actually doing anything about or for the memory of or justice for the her friend. Yeah, I think that was something that I really liked about the movie, mm-hmm. is that I think, like, when you're writing something that's as complicated as this, it's a lot easier to make your hero... Your, it's a lot easier to make your hero just, like... And I am loath to use the word, a girl boss. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you can just make her, like, step in, get her, like, violent, bloody revenge on every man who's ever wronged her, and then she comes out of it, like, looking pristine. And I feel like... But that's not actually the way this type of thing would play out ever. Like, if someone is going to be doing this, they're going to have, like, a lot of issues and problems arise from that. They're going to be very mentally unstable, and they're going to target a lot of the wrong people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I think part of when the movie really wants you to feel deeply uncomfortable is when she tricks other women. Mm -hmm. Like, not the men who have been exploiting her or have, like, been contributing to this atmosphere of rape culture... She takes other women and makes them feel or believe that they or someone they love has been sexually assaulted. And I think this is when things start to get real murky. Because while you understand where Cassie is coming from, this is like a line that you don't cross. Yeah, it seemed like unforgivable to me. Yeah, and Cassie just like jumps over it with a plum. Mm-hmm. Like she enjoys it. This is on the same level as like getting her revenge on like men who are sexual assaulters. I like that. I think that if you're looking at this from a realistic perspective, someone who would be going on this, like, lifelong revenge quest would be obsessed with it to the point where their mind, the way they approach these sort of conflicts would be sort of, like, incredibly distorted. They're not going to go about things rationally or even necessarily meaningfully. They're just going to lash out at everyone around them who they perceive as complicit, and they're going to end up hurting some people in some ways that are, like, completely antithetical to what they're ultimately trying to achieve, which is... I mean, not female liberation, but, like, the sense of, like, this isn't an okay thing to do. You have to stand up. You have to pay attention. I agree with you, and yet I also came out of this movie feeling like standing up and paying attention 
isn't enough and that you, and that maybe the movie's desire and focus on attention as a kind of solution or a way of addressing this problem felt um unsatisfying to me and maybe even wrong-headed well i guess we can tackle that in my next question sure which is, how did you feel about that ending? That ending was definitely why I came out of the movie feeling so positively about you it. You were jazzed about that ending. Yes. Yeah, for I, sure. We watched it. So we watched this movie with Lyra and her friend, Kate. Um, and it seemed like the two of you both were completely surprised and thrilled by the ending of this movie. Yes. And I think, like, it's a very, very high note to end on, like, not in terms of what happens, but in terms of, like, the emotional impact of it. Mm-hmm. It sort of slaps you... It The ending of the movie punches you in the face once, and then it punches you in the face again, but with a giant rubber squeaky hammer, and then it <laughs> slaps you again in the other face. In the other face? Yes. So, I mean, but you're... you're basically, by ending, you mean Cassie's death. Cassie's death, yes. Um, and then the turnaround in which she's left the clues behind so that Al, who the guy who raped her friend and who killed her gets caught and arrested at his at his own wedding. Yeah. I found the ending funny and satisfying and probably the right ending for this movie. It also enraged me. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I like... One of the things that I really, really liked about this movie was how it sets out to be this power fantasy in mm-hmm. regards of, like, inserting yourself onto this woman. And, like, it's not that. It's a rumination as to, like, how these sort of systems and control, how um, rape culture and our understanding of it, it, like, doesn't result in someone coming out on top, other than men, of course. It doesn't result in an individual woman coming out on top, empowered by their actions, able to successfully subvert it. It results in a lot of, like, damaged and uncomfortable people who take out their pain on people who, like, don't deserve it, like other women, Um, and then, like, end up getting completely screwed over by it. And, like, Cassie is not a power fantasy. She's, like, a a tragedy. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of, like, reasonable complaints you can make about that. But it's also a thing I like. Because that's much more likely to happen. So you basically feel like it's a fantastical genre. The revenge fantasy put through a realism filter. Yes. Forces you to think about, well, what would something like this look like in real life? Yes. And what it does look like in real life is a woman going completely off the rails, hurting a lot of people who deserve it and a lot of people who don't, um, and then dying unceremoniously. Very unceremoniously. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of my big problems, I mean, one of the things that turned me off the most about this movie is, is that death scene, which I found basically pornographic. And just unbelievably cruel to a character and to an audience and i didn't think it needed to be you know it's a basically an uncut two and a half minute shot of this character we've been with the whole movie uh and who is trying to avenge an act of violence against a woman she loved being suffocated uh by the guy who did that thing it's pretty gruesome and in a way that I didn't, in a way that seemed designed to hurt us, and I didn't understand why. I think I know why. 
in terms of was this a good decision, that I don't know. But I do think this ties back to the earlier point of, like, this stuff is going to hurt. It's, mm-hmm. like, not going to be a fun power fantasy for anyone. It's not going to end up being, like, a, like just, like, a real gotem to the boys. What it is going to be is, like, suffering and pain and death. And, like, I get the point of that. And I think that that is a good point to make. Like, I think that's a meaningful point to make. I think the problem arises, like how you said it, is that when it can feel like that point, even if it's purposeful and, like, executed properly, it just hurts too much to, like, present to a bunch of people who, like... Like, I've been talking about how I like that it subverts the revenge fantasy, but I've sort of been dancing around the topic of, like, this is a revenge fantasy for people who really need one. Right. And, like, to not present that, to present the opposite of that, I like that. I like that it's not a revenge fantasy. You like it as a structural, a unique and surprising structural decision. Yes, I like it as a unique and surprising structural decision. The actual implications of it hurt. And I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether to revel in that hurt or, like, hate it and find it disgusting and manipulative. I don't know. It really confuses me on a lot of levels, and I like that. I mean, like, even if this movie is not the best composed things ever, I like things that make me really confused. I'm a 46-year-old guy who's never suffered sexual violence, and so I can't... And I hated that death scene. I cannot even imagine what, for example, a woman who has been the victim of sexual violence, who walked into this movie... Feel understanding only that it was like a candy-colored rape revenge movie. How that person would feel about that scene? I um, imagine that would feel just awful. I think it would be hard, and I don't. And like, is that necessarily a strike against the movie? A movie that is obviously so determinedly what it wants to be. It's not like it's not like that scene was a mistake or an accident. Emerald Fennell clearly knew exactly what she wanted the movie to be. She wanted it to be that subversion that you, exactly as you say, she wanted it to undercut um, the force of revenge. And as you say, it's revenge that the people who who have imagined themselves into that kind of revenge for much of their lives really need. And so, you know... I often really like things that confuse and trouble me, but this one rubbed me the wrong way, I think, because it felt like the people most likely to be hurt by the movie are the very people the movie is ostensibly about. And that's easy for me to say. I'm not one of those people. That's a judgment I'm making all on my own, but it still made me... It still unnerved me and made me unhappy. Yeah, I get that. At the same time, like, there are aspects of this movie that are super fucking fun. As you say, the color and the the zinginess and... Um, Cassie herself is, like, ridiculously fun. She's super fun. And she and, spits in Bo Burnham's cup. Right, her, so schemes, her schemes are funny. Um, th- there's even, like, a little quite satisfying mini romantic comedy in the middle of the movie that is like weirdly uh adorable and perfect yeah uh, until bo burnham is revealed to be just another not a nice guy um oh my god i honestly in retrospect that might have been like the best part of the movie is that it's a very satisfying rom-com yeah god but like even like in the sense of the rom-com i like keep thinking about this line i'm gonna buy you a bike 
Like, such a cute fucking thing to say. God, I'm going to buy you a bike. And it's like, ugh. And then I just, like, love, I feel like if there's any, like, real gut punch to the movie that doesn't make you waffle over, like, how much it deserves to be there, it's the fact that Bo Burnham is not a nice guy. I feel like that was... that reveal is is very good. Yes, that is, like, definitely absolutely the most coherent and, like, undisputably fantastic part of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's like, I feel like even though some of the stuff... In the beginning, it's, like, a little heavy-handed. Like, I find it a little bit hard to believe that every single guy that she's picked up has behaved in this exact same way. Obviously, there are a lot of people that would do that. Right. But, like... There's it, definitely at least one person who just drove her home. Yes. Um. But, like, this part with Bo Burnham, that's real. That's the kind of shit that happens all the time. Right. There's super nice men um, who, like... And it's, like, I think it's helped by the fact that it's Bo Burnham who's playing him. It's great we, casting. Yes. Who we know, like, so completely as, like, this, like, just, like, super... Not woke... But, like, just, like, super cool dude, mm-hmm. like, in general. Can you explain for those listeners who are 46 <laughs> who Bo Burnham is, please? Bo Burnham is a comedian um, and also, like, recently has made a movie mm-hmm. um, who, like, makes, like, a lot of jokes about, like, the current state of the world and um, his own status as a straight white male and... Um, he's, he's a YouTube comedian. Right? Yes. That's where he first sort of became prominent yes you may have known him from such hits as even my boyfriend thinks i'm gay um and he made like a fantastic absolutely incredible movie that me and dad both really loved called eighth grade mm-hmm. how long ago was that it was when i was in seventh grade it was when you were in seventh grade yeah so three years ago oh, jesus mm-hmm. um but yeah that movie was fantastic and it's like it's good casting both from like just like the sort of face that dude has mm-hmm. like he's he just he looks a little bit like a golden retriever um <laughs> Um, but also just because of, like, the sort of reputation that guy has. And so the fact that he, I mean, there are, obviously I'm not making any implications about the character of Bo Burnham, but the fact that, like, these, like, sort of, like, charming, nice, like, feminist guys, all the time they are sexual abusers or someone who has been complicit in sexual abuse, all the time. Like, Joss Whedon, man. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, that is, I mean, it's so good, the way that it's all executed, um, yeah, I found that way more satisfying even than the sort of surprise turnabouts of, of the bar scenes because the movie did such a good job of convincing us that in every way, Bo Burnham's character is a nice guy. He remains a nice guy, yet he also did this terrible thing, excuses himself for this terrible thing, and doesn't understand the way that rape culture perpetuates in him yeah and it's like one thing that i really love about it is that the moment it comes out he doesn't exactly become all evil villain right now anything he's... he's like he looks at it and he's horrified he's like i forgot i did that please put that video away and yet it's like it's still it's not like those things are mutually like exclusive it doesn't make him stop being funny or right. charming or right. interesting or stop being in love with cassie which he definitely was. But it's like, these are traits that can coexist. A man can be funny or smart or charming uh, and, like, attract women and genuinely care about people in his life. But also, when he was in college, he could have stood by and watched at a party as his friend raped a woman. Right. I wrote a piece this year making the argument that this is one of the few years that there are no actually bad movies nominated for Best Picture. Most years... There's at least one, and often the majority of the movies nominated for Best Picture are actually bad. A controversial opinion incoming. Uh, No, it's not that controversial, honestly. 
but this year I really feel like there aren't any actually bad movies, even though I don't really like promising young woman. I don't think it's a bad movie in part because primarily because it is, it does so confidently accomplish the thing that it sets out to do. It's just that I'm not convinced that's a good thing to do. Right. The right thing to do. Yeah. I remember. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I remember at one point online, I had a friend of mine say, and I still remember the sentence deeply, even though it's been like two years since he said it. If my goal is to kick you in the balls, if by achieving that, have I done a good thing? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's kind of a great mini review of Promising Young Woman, honestly. And the other reason that I don't, that I'm hesitant to really dismiss this movie is because I do think it, in fact, has been very meaningful and a truly great viewing experience for a lot of people, including a lot of women, including you and Kate, including a lot of other people I know who are big fans of this movie, uh, women and men. Um, And so clearly there are people who get exactly what they need out of this movie and who do find it a totally cathartic experience of the sort that I couldn't find it at all. But clearly there are people who are who are experiencing it exactly that way. I wanted to talk about Al. Al? Yeah. Who I think was like kind of far and away like one of the most incredible acting performances I've seen in a long time. Tell me why. I keep thinking about this line he says mm-hmm. when his friend goes, listen, listen, okay, this is not your fault. And he goes... I don't know. It sort of looks like it is from here. (laughs) That's extremely... It caught me so fucking off guard. Mm -hmm. It was like, I just, I don't know. I feel like Al was like the peak of what this movie was trying to say about the way some men behave. He's like living a good life. Mm -hmm. I don't think he even thinks about that shit anymore. Oh, definitely not. I think it would be so much easier if he was just like a cackling villain. Like I said about Bo earlier... But, like, he's clearly not that. He's a despicable piece of shit. But, like, at the same time, he has compassion for other people. I don't know. I guess the point I'm getting at is that he acts like a human. He looks like a human. He talks like a human. He has a wife he cares about. And then, like, a bunch of buddies he pals around with. And yet, like, in every single word he emits, it's so obvious that he just doesn't give a shit about his impact on women. Not because he, like, revels in their pain, but because he doesn't even necessarily think of them as, like, real people. Right. Like, they're just things he can do whatever he wants to. And so he's still capable of, like, expressing feelings towards men and all that good shit. But, like, when it comes to women, who cares? Like, why should he care? That doesn't have anything to do with him. And, like, one of the best scenes, I think, in the entire movie was a scene after his friend discovers him. It's, like, you get all these layers of machismo like pulled away like violently and i think it's like so important that the scene is like sort of intimate how his friend like holds him and hugs him Mm -hmm. like how how it would be like a lot easier to make these characters just be all like manlike about it you know like but i think all right we did it it's time to burn the body yeah but no it's like it's like they're so clearly like shocked and horrified and i think it's meaningful that they're willing to show each other this sort of intimacy and affection like this knowledge of like this is a horrible thing i need to go to look to another person to get help here, it's like he thinks he's deserving of being absolved of some of this guilt. Mm-hmm. His friend thinks he's deserving of being absolved of some of this guilt. And he looks 
to a man to absolve him of some of this guilt because he doesn't think a woman is capable of understanding his feelings and giving him any sort of affection or respect or sympathy or anything. So they find solace in each other and they bury this body together and they he reassures him that it's not, and it's like I just have like a, like a lot of feelings about the way that scene plays out and how like they're so clearly able to confide in each other and like it was so clearly willing to take the secret to their graves and it's like they are allowed to. I'm very impressed that you are able to give that scene such a thoughtful close read because during that scene i definitely was like okay i've checked out <laughs> i'm no thank you <laughs> just like completely zoned out i think man i just keep coming back to that line it was so good oh my god and i didn't even bring up the way that he's like sobbing and like almost vomiting mm-hmm. as they're burning the body like it's clearly something that's affecting him but what what's affecting him isn't that he killed a person it's the implications it's gonna have on his life right like oh my god i just want to let you know in case you ever need this, I'm not going to judge why. It's actually much more difficult to burn a body than this movie suggests it is. Yeah, I, I do know that much. Okay, good. Great. Then I then consider my parenting responsibilities. <laughs> uh, all right. Out of 10, what do you give this movie? I don't know. <laughs> Final answer. An L. <laughs> Liar out of 10. Liar out of 10. So you... I liked it. It seems like you liked it. You I really are can't... troubled by it. And you were provoked by it. Yes. Okay. I think that's... I mean, on some level, I mean, that's the biggest thing an artistic piece can achieve. It makes me scream at a microphone for 20 minutes. Yeah. I give it a five. Mm. A lot of good things. A lot of things I it's give not it. the. F- it's not the five of mediocrity. It's the five of the good things and bad things canceled right. each other the out. High, real high highs and real low lows. <laughs> yep. Averages out to five. Uh, all right. Which of these two should win best picture? From a coherency standpoint, Nomadland. Mm-hmm. From a audience reaction standpoint, and in terms of what it achieved from people, Promising Young Woman. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're looking at the Oscars as a measure of objectively a better movie than Nomadland. If we're looking at the Oscars from a measure of like a million different things, like good movie points, yes, but also what did it make us feel? What did it make us talk about? What did it make us scream about? How did we react to it? How did we interact with it? Promising Young Woman. I mean, what's interesting to me is that Promising Young Woman of all the Oscar nominees by far is closest in spirit to the movie that won last year, Parasite, a movie you love. I mean, Parasite's fantastic. Um, I also think Parasite's fantastic, much better than Promising Young Woman, but I also think they're similarly unlikely nominees. They're similarly provocative uh, experiments in in a kind of, in taking a very particular social issue and putting it through like a heightened stylized genre experiment. And Promising Young Woman isn't expected to win, but I don't know that I would be surprised at all if it eventually, if it did, even though Nomadland is definitely the favorite. I don't know. I feel like I'd be a little bit surprised just because it felt like, I didn't think Parasite was obviously going to win, but I felt like there's a lot less problems you could have with it mm-hmm. than Promising Young Woman. And I think all the possible flaws you could, could come away from Promising Young Woman having would sort of rule it out in a sense, whereas Parasite is just like, 
I mean, didn't Elon Musk call it his favorite movie or something? Everyone loves Parasite. Yes, even the people that Parasite hates. Right, exactly. What are we watching next episode? Next episode, we are watching a movie that I personally haven't seen, but would really like to see, called A Silent Voice. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me about it. Is it anime? Why, yes, Dad. It's almost like I told you this before. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, this is all improvised on the spot. Make them ups. <laughs> Most of it is. Mm -hmm. Um, An anime called... A Silent Voice. A Silent Voice. What's it about? A Silent Voice. It's about a girl who's deaf, who moves to a new town, gets bullied an awful lot, and about how she attempts to communicate with other people despite not being able to hear. Yes, Lyra told me ahead of time she was choosing that because I enjoy it when we do movies that are simpatico in some way. Mm -hmm. And so I have chosen The Piano, a 1993 movie by a New Zealand director, Jane Campion, uh, one of my favorite directors. It was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but it's not that boring, I don't think. Um, <laughs> it is about a mute Scottish woman who, in the uh, 19th century, who travels to a remote part of New Zealand for an arranged marriage with a, uh, with a rough and rugged frontiersman, um, who then finds herself surprised by an affair with uh, a, a even more rough and rugged neighbor. Um, it, I think it's quite a be beautiful movie. I'm curious whether it will resemble A Silent Voice in any way. I'm also curious how I will do. I believe this will be the first movie I've ever watched with you, Lyra, that's just got full frontal male nudity. Can't wait. Ah, uh, yeah. It's going to be awesome. Prepare yourself for that. Yes. Uh, Where's the piano? You mentioned this whole plot summary and there was no piano in it. He's going to take off his clothes and there's just a piano underneath. That's right. That's what the full frontal nudity is. <laughs> That's correct. Thank you for listening, everyone. Once again, if you've got any questions or any movie recommendations for us, drop us a line at youpicktonight at gmail.com. Uh, I'm Dan. I'm Lyra. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys. Thinking about one